All right, bring that Ezekiel 37. As I said in church, this is probably the most famous part of Ezekiel. You probably all know it. Maybe some of you who've been given to sing in a choir probably sang the song, them bones, them bones, them dry bones, you know, the African spiritual. You know this one? Yeah. So uh, I think that's why it's so familiar. And also because uh, it comes up every year um, in the lectionary. It doesn't matter which lectionary you use. If you use the one-year lectionary like we do, it comes up, I think, the second Sunday after Easter is when it comes up. It's also at the Easter Vigil. It's one of the optional readings there. And you can talk about maybe why. If you uh, use three-year lectionary, the other um, of the, well, there's other lectionaries too, but the three-year in Lutheran service book, I think it comes up every year, but it's at a different place. Sometimes it's in Lent, sometimes it's in Easter, and I think one of the years it actually comes up as, a, as the Pentecost gospel. Old Testament, I should say. So they, they move it all over the place um, because it really has that kind of, here's a big word for your day, you ready? Multivalency. This is a valance. Some of you have really fancy houses where you have a valance in front of the valance, and then maybe you have a valance in front of the valance in front of the valance, right? The super fancy houses. You've seen that. Yeah, it's a sign of luxury or something. Multivalent, meaning multiple levels. So it can be used in a couple, a lot of different contexts. Uh, And we want to talk a little bit about that in the way that. Hmm, how do we come to the understanding of what it's all about, I think, and the way that we use it in our readings? But, uh, so we're just going to read the first 14 verses. As familiar as the first 14 verses are, the second half, nobody knows, because <laughs> we never hear it in church. Um, so I wanted to make sure we could spend a good amount of time on that. So we'll, we'll knock that till next week, probably. We might look at it a little bit today, but... All right, so let's read uh, this, famous, this famous pericope story. Chapter 37. Who wants to read for us? I'm going to change translations. Sorry. Now we can go. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out, and the Spirit of the Lord set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were many, very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I'm going to scroll up a little bit. Go. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied that I commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Scroll up. Okay. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, says the Lord. Says the Lord. All right. Um, I suppose there's something that we probably should mention that's not on the sheet. Um, I... In- intentionally avoided the topic of Israel today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mostly because I don't, I don't think I don't think it's wise to jump into some, a situation like that that you can't possibly understand. Um, or maybe you can only understand parts of it, maybe. Um, it, and we as Christians have, a, have actually a pretty significant challenge. Since, as you heard, in the, I actually did emphasize it in the prayers, is that Jerusalem that we prayed for in the psalm and that I mentioned in, it's, it's the church. 
So the particular geographic location of Jerusalem, we've talked about this at length through Ezekiel, is not, um, is not in view for the Christian. We're not really concerned about a particular place called Israel and a particular city called Jerusalem as far as faith is concerned. All right. that's, and that's the important note. As far as bodily life, people losing lives under attack, um, yes, I think obviously we, we can be concerned and pray for peace, which is what the right answer is to do. Unfortunately, it seems, it seems like most of the public speakers from our country are saying, yay, Israel, go to war for the first time in 50 years, right? Officially declaring war, which um, uh, we don't ever wish for war and we don't even encourage people to go to war. And we always sue for peace. Um, even if it means you have to forfeit some of your land or you have to, it's like lots of life. Anyway, so I don't we really want to pick sides. I think both sides actually can make a case. Hamas is clearly a terrible terrorist organization, but I think the Palestinians have a, can make a case as much as Israel can for that land, which is not, that's not a popular opinion amongst Christians, especially what we call the Zionists. So there, I waded into it, and I was <laughs> I avoided in church. But I have to answer what we thought Yeah, um, as to, yeah, there's more that I could say, but I think that's enough on that. Um, but it, it does pose a challenge for Christians, because um, I've even had this in congregations I've served, where people were upset that I said, um, that the nation whom the Lord loves is not Israel. Oh, and that didn't cause very much problems. But when I said the nation whom the Lord loves is not the United States of America, then I got in trouble. How dare you say that America is not God's chosen people? And I'm like, um, no, the nation is the church. Anyway. Okay, so uh, hopefully you're better catechized um, than I managed to six, six, do there because I... Never could excise that. But it, I guess it depends on what else you listen to, right? So if you listen to you know, uh, other, especially Zionist Christians who are very into... The reason why people, some Christians care so much about Israel is they believe that it, it, once the Muslims are finally run out and the mosque is destroyed and the temple is rebuilt, then Jesus will come again. And they pull this out of Revelation without really much... Um, without any other context, really, and, and precedent. So they're very concerned about Israel, um, not in just a humanly speaking sense, but actually in a spiritual sense. And uh, that's why so much money goes from our, our government to Israel. We're almost a vassal state as far as the amount of money we send to Israel. They don't send us the money, we send them. And we support them. So anyway, um, yeah, so that's always the problem when we talk about my people and, the, and when we talk about the land and we talk about the armies. Israel or Jerusalem, those names, um, it gets to be a problem. Because we say it's fulfilled in the church. Um, well, actually, we should probably talk about this. It's in the first paragraph, so um, that's a segue. Um, the, about halfway into that first paragraph, you see where it says St. Augustine? You see that? All right, so right before that, the paragraph right before it, there is dispute among critics as to whether this chapter describes a literal resurrection of the body from the dead, which is, I think, how you hear it, right? Resurrection of the body from the dead? Yeah. Or is simply Israel's national resurrection, meaning it's like a metaphor for how Israel's going to be brought back from exile, and they're going to be restored, and they're going to be given life again by God, in a metaphorical way. Um, now, what's important to note here is that it can be understood both ways. We've talked, this is that multivalent the word that Luke didn't know, right? Multivalent, meaning there can be levels of meaning, like an onion, you peel it, right? Yeah. And so can it refer to them being restored? Of course it can, to the land, right? Um, that's not how Christians have typically understood it. And so I said, here's St. Augustine's dictum. The New Testament is latent in the Old, and the Old Testament becomes patent in the New. And that's just literal translation from the Latin there. In vetere novum. Do you want ecclesiastical or classical Latin? Right. Everybody, they argue about which pronunciation. Uh, there's two different pronunciations. Anyway, lateat et in novo, no wo or novo, depending on who you like, vetus pateat. So the idea is that the, the New Testament is always in the background of the Old Testament. It's always there, you know, waiting to be born, if you like, which is Christmas. <laughs> uh, whereas in the Old Testament, it becomes patent. In other words, it becomes clear as to what the Old Testament is about because of the New Testament. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, 
this is the right way to understand how like a modern day Jew would read the Old Testament. And, and you're like, well, how can you not see Jesus here? Well, they don't have the New Testament. They den- or they deny the New Testament. Once you hear the New Testament, you're like, wait a minute, this is resurrection of the body language. <laughs> this is very clear. This is what we talk about all the time. Um, but they may not hear it that way. All right, so they hear it as referring to their nation. Um, so there, keep going. We have received the Old Testament anew at Christ's hand, and now read it with the veil lifted from our faces, says Paul in 2 Corinthians. The Old Testament teaches a tradition of life with God after death, so that's not a new thing. I gave you some citations there. Some passages of life after death are explicit. Um, so you have the promise there uh, in the Psalms, in Hosea, and Isaiah, and Daniel. That's not Dan, that's Dan at the end there. If you've got a, you see the typo. Yeah, Dan. All right. That's okay. In any case. So uh, this also comes up then by the New Testament, right? We met those guys today. How did Jesus silence the Sadducees? Right before our reading, you can guess if you know just a little bit about the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees only held to the books of Moses. Pharisees held to the law and the prophets. That's why Jesus can commend the law and the prophets to them. Right? Of course, they added all their other laws and they don't hear the gospel at all in it. Right? They don't seem to care that much about the Messiah. But the Sadducees did only books of Moses so they don't get the explicit resurrection accounts in Hosea, in Isaiah, in Daniel, or even in, in the book of Samuel or in Kings, even the ones that are implied. They don't have, the Sadducees don't have the resurrection of Elijah, that Elijah performs or Elisha performs. So they deny the resurrection. They say there is no resurrection of the dead. All right. Um, so at least the Pharisees had that part right. They just didn't have where it comes from. All right. Uh, let's see, what else do you want to talk about? Next paragraph, I suppose. I would suggest the New Testament doesn't have an explicit citation of this section, despite it being so familiar to us. But that really wonky resurrection scene in Matthew, I say it's wonky because it's only in Matthew. Remember those details? I wrote them down there, I think, for you, but I'll go to it. All right, when Jesus died in Matthew, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked. There was the quaking of the bones, right? We saw that. The rocks were split. The graves were opened. We saw that. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We saw that. And coming out of the graves after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. But it sounds like, a resur- like an army resurrected from the dead, doesn't it? Maybe that's, maybe that's the reference Matthew's looking at. I think. At least it's a possibility. Um, of course, this is just a little resurrection, which we've seen a bunch of those in the gospel. All of these presumably still died and are waiting the, the big resurrection on the last day, right? Yes. Yeah, there's very few people that are taken immediately into heaven. Enoch. Who else? Elijah. Is there another one? Kind of Methuselah, maybe. You know, he just kind of disappears. Who knows? All right. So maybe Matthew's in mind there. Um, I would suggest John's gospel is full of these. If you were with us for John for that study, you'll remember some of these. So, uh, for example, John 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. So what's the important note there? What gives them resurrection? The voice. The voice, right? And the account from Ezekiel, where, what brought the bones together? What called the sinews and flesh to come upon them? What even brought the breath from the winds to them? How did that all happen? Just spontaneously? He watched and it happened? What did he do? What did, what, what did the Lord give Elijah to do? It's the same thing. Yeah, prophesy. <laughs> Say to the bones, right? So what brought them to life again? The voice of command, right? The voice of the Lord. All right. Even if it's in the mouth of Ezekiel, it's still the same voice. All right. Uh, Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, John 11. And then I think Revelation 11 is probably a direct quote, or at least a direct allusion. Here we go. These are two witnesses. Now, after the three and a half days, or after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. It's these two witnesses that were slain before that. 
And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw them. So what's the two, two things that have in common with the Ezekiel account? The breath of life from God, and they stood on their feet. Yeah, so we had both of those in Ezekiel as well. Standing on their feet, right? This is why we stand so much in church. <laughs> Not because pastor you know, wants to have you do calisthenics or something. <laughs> Liturgical calis- uh, exercise. Calisthenics. What's that? Wouldn't be bad idea. All right, stand up and stretch. All right, now sit down. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So then, what we have to do to maybe so you can see this connection here, maybe we have to go back to Ezekiel and I'll show you something. And it's at the beginning. Um, there's a bunch of words that occur over and over. Um, most of them you see. So life you see quite a bit. Uh, what else do you see quite a bit? Bones, right? You see those those words a lot. Bones in there ten times, prophesies in there seven times, to live or come back to life is six times, right? But the, there's another word that occurs even more, but it's not always translated the same. And I know John knows this, right? Because we've talked about it in chapel, and the kids love saying the Hebrew word. You see it on the sheet? It's in italics. Ruach. Yeah, okay, it's like four lines down, the first paragraph. Yeah, the word ruach in Hebrew is... One of these words that can mean a couple different things, or many different things. So it can mean uh, spirit, ruach, right here. It can mean what else? Breath and wind. Where's that? Uh, sure, that would cause breath. This is the same word. Spirit and breath are the same word. And you shall live. Covered in breath. There it is again. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Just keep going. I prophesied as commanded, and there was a noise, suddenly a rattling. That's the earthquake, by the way, the noise. And the rattling or earthquake would be that too. And skin covered, and there was no breath. There it is again. And then he says, prophesy to the breath, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, from the winds, that's the same word, winds, breath, breathe. There's the verb form. And breath came into them, and they lived, and I stood on their feet. But this word breath, 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 breathe, winds, is the same word translated as spirit in the first paragraph. Isn't that interesting? Then he says, uh, Behold, Lord, my people, I will open the graves, and open your graves for my people, bring you from graves. I will put my spirit or breath or wind in you, and you shall live. All right. So this is one of those challenging words because it means, well, how do you translate it? Do you translate it as breath, or do you translate it as wind, or do you translate it as spirit? All right, so how would you how would you work with that? Hmm. How do you make the decision? Like in English, it's pretty easy because it usually has like there'll be a proper word, there'll be a proper article, a definitive article, right? The spirit. Oh, the wind. Well, that's clearly not the wind. It means the spirit. Do you just figure it out from context? Yeah. So this is Hebrew. Uh huh. Ruach. Right. So that's different than Greek. I know Greek has like. Five meanings for a word sometimes. Is Hebrew the same? Yeah, Hebrew's worse. It is. Oh, no. Greek is, is easy. There might be two or three definitions. Hebrew, it could be five, ten, even sometimes. Yeah. It's, so it's a simpler language in a sense. There's a more limited vocabulary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess you might say. Anybody got any ideas? How, you it? How about, I'll give you a suggestion. You want a suggestion? Is this my cup or yours? We have matching cups. Look, we have matching cups. Uh, how about it's the same thing? Huh. Oh. How about you can translate it differently, but it's always, it is actually, in this story, it's the same thing. The breath of God is the spirit of God. And the spirit blows when and where he wills. You don't know the sound as with the wind, right? And then... This really helps you when you do get to the New Testament and you go to a place at a time like Pentecost. And what's the sound that's in the room? A mighty rushing wind, which is there again. It could be our mighty rushing spirit. It's because the spirit does come upon them and they prophesy. Yeah. So um, this also helps then when you go to like John 20. Probably put this on the sheet somewhere. Oh yeah, in the next paragraph. Or no, at the end of the second paragraph. Uh, when Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
You ever wonder why he breathes on them? He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Where did it come from? Proceeds from the Father and the Son. It came out of his mouth. He breathes on them. So his breath is life. Uh, which connects you then back to Genesis. He makes Adam and he breathes on Adam, right? Connects you here to Ezekiel, where there's the bones, and then you breathe breath of life into them. And then connects us to the New Testament, where Jesus comes and he breathes life back into his uh, disciples who abandoned him and who are caught in their sin and need life. Patrick, Patrick. Such violent coloring. Uh, One more passage to look at on this. Because guess what we hear, what gospel text we hear at the same time we hear is that the Ezekiel text is John chapter 3. Um, so, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? All right, you've heard that before. All right. But look at, his, look at Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the breath, pneuma in Greek, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, dies. Right? And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, as the breath of life lives. Do not marvel that I said to you must be born again. And then look at what he says. The wind, spirit, breath, blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there even Jesus um, likens the Spirit and its move, the Spirit's movement to the, to the wind. Which will help um, with our text today. I did, when I read it, I translated it both ways. There's even probably a note, that little one about the note that tells you. Or, from above, yeah. Yeah. We actually had a Higher Things Youth Gathering, oh, probably 10 years ago. It was called From Above. That was the name of the conference, and it was, this was the chief text for the whole week. And went back and forth on this. Are you born again? Yes. Are you born from God? Yes. So you can translate it both ways. So I usually just say you must be born again from above. <laughs> just do it both ways. Yeah, this is a resurrection story. This is the first one probably, in, uh, except for the first chapter. Right? But it's really a baptism story, right? Because you're born by water and the Spirit. So uh, baptism is, is your resurrection from the dead. Uh, now, by faith, right, but already marking you as one for the resurrection on the last day. So you'll be like, just like those, those uh, warriors in the field, right, where your bones come together and sinews and flesh and skin, and then breath enters you again at the word of command from God, right? Which is, when he says, come out of the grave, it, his breath is like the wind that comes and brings life into you too, because his word does what it says. This is important, I think, um, um, was it last week, maybe? I'm going to say Vicky brought this up. You were talking about Scripture and being God-breathed. Was that last week? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Timothy 3.16. Yeah, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's in the third paragraph there. That when... We'll go back to the Ezekiel text now. Sorry. There we go. When it says, The hand of the Lord came upon me. That's kind of an incarnate... Kind of language, isn't it? His hand. And brought me by the Spirit of the Lord. Set me down in the midst of the valley... Then he said to me, son of man, I, you said, oh Lord God, you know, we'll talk about that in a minute. Then he said to me, prophesy. So now the word that Ezekiel is going to speak has been given to him by the hand of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord. Right? So it is God breathed, literally. It's God's breath into him. He says, say this, and then Ezekiel says that. I mentioned that in the sermon too, by the way. Um, you, don't, you don't need God's word to be a law preacher. Um, actually, that's, that's the only kind of preaching you hear outside of do this or don't do that, right? Um, and actually, pastors, I don't have to prepare to preach the law. <laughs> I know it quite well in my heart, right? Um, but to, to preach the gospel is not easy. It actually uh, requires the inspiration of God. In other words, searching um, and, and speaking in the way that God has spoken by his 
by his apostles and evangelists. Um, now, if you study God's word enough, you start to inculcate the language, and so you have those words, right? But, like, it's never... Somebody asked, like, what's the atonement? I think we had... Somebody asked me that question. Was that... Yeah. I said, well, the Right, exactly. So now how do I answer that question? I don't have like a whole resource of like logic that I can use. I simply have to say, well, here's what atonement is as God has revealed it. It's, it's a blood covering, um, the atoning sacrifice or like the, the, the goats and the lambs and the bulls, right? Their blood is sprinkled on the people and it covers their sin. That's what God calls it. Ah, it seems kind of, I still, it's like, that's what it is. But does that make sense that you need to be covered in blood? Well, there's life in the blood, okay. I mean, I think you can get to the point where you say, okay, there's some sense to it, but it's still like, why, right? And, well, God said so. He revealed this. This is, how, this is how, what has to happen for sin. It has to be atoned for. It has to be covered with blood. And blood that has life, not blood that brings death. So Jesus' blood. It's not a metaphor. It's actually real. Okay, and you're all like, yeah, that's, that's true, but then how do you prove it to somebody? Like, what's going to be the benefit? How is it going to improve society or something? Well, it does, yeah. But then you're back to, well, with the Lord's Supper, this is a great example. We call it a sacrament, or in Greek, a mysterion. <laughs> it's a mystery. It's like, it is what it is. I don't understand how it is. Um, we even have a hymn that even says that. Ask not how this can be. It is a mystery. You're like, okay. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, that's what faith is. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't have to make sense. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. If it, if it weren't by faith, you wouldn't need the word or the spirit. You wouldn't, you know. So what would not be by faith? What, everybody believes in blood sacrifice, right? They just don't believe on that blood being on them. That's actually to appease an angry God. And the God needs the blood, not you. So it's actually backwards. All right, anyway, where were we? Uh, hand and spirit. We talked about hand. Talked about, a little bit about hand. Spirit. By the way, when hand and spirit have gone together, we've seen this before, it indicates that there's going to be a vision. So um, there is some dispute. Is this literal or, or a visionary kind of thing, these bones and everything? Um, I think the indications are pretty clear that it's a vision. And for that reason, we as Christians have no problem saying this is, a, this is a vision of the last day. This is what's going to happen, right? And it, except it'll be Jesus, the one who's going to be prophesying to the bones, all right? So I, th I think that's how we do it. Um, as to which valley this is, I guess you could talk about it. But I mean, what is interesting about it is they, they are warriors, right? It's an army and these are slain. Right? So they've been killed for what purpose? It doesn't say. Um, and this valley. And maybe there you might think of uh, the valley of the shadow of death, right? I think that might come to mind. But is it a very specific valley? Maybe. But I don't know what it is. Anybody know? Which battle? Which soldiers? What valley? It doesn't say, does it? Yeah. So we don't need to speculate on that. All right. Okay. So then. Um, Direct speech. Verse 3. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Does this sound familiar? From God's apocalypse, his re revelation? Should sound familiar. Revelation 7. Yeah. Uh, the angels stood around the throne. The elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There's our Easter song, right? Worthy is the Lamb. Then one of the, or as you say, this is the feast. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are, look at this, who are these arrayed in white robes and from where do they come from? And I said, John, sir, you know. Right? You see it? Where do they come from? I say, sir, you know. Is that answering the question? Can these bones live? Oh, Lord God, you know. Is he answering the question? I mean, it is an answer, but is it? Does he know? Doesn't seem like Ezekiel actually is quite prepared to answer yet. He's like, is this a trick question? Can these bones? Well, you're God. 
so I guess I, you know, <laughs> see how that works. Who are these in white robes and where did they come from? And John's like, uh, you know, he says to the elder. And you're right. He's right. Oh, I didn't let you see the answer. Uh, where were we? Oh no. Now we're in Acts. How did we get to Acts three? Uh, Revelation seven, right? Is what I said. Uh, Sir, you know, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Right? So I think you do have, like, this is the continuation of the Ezekiel story. Right? They're raised to life. Then they're clothed in white robes. And then um, they're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And they're brought before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in the temple. So it's like the part two of what we saw in Ezekiel. You could take it that way, I think. Works pretty well. All right. Yeah, pleading divine ignorance, or uh, human, what did did I say? Human ignorance. Sorry, I'm jumping around on the screen. Be patient. It keeps losing my spot. All right. So, God, you know. Uh, I don't know, but you know. All right. And he says, you are alone. Ooh, they added the alone? What does ESV do? Oh, God, you know. Same, Same thing as New King James. NIV, you alone know. I like that. That works for me. Luther actually encouraged us to add the alones where it was implied. So, yeah. God is the creator of, of life. He's the Lord and giver of life. Or his spirit is the Lord and giver of life. We confess in the Nicene Creed. So, can these bones live? As far as we know, yeah, of course they can. Right? And I think that... I don't think it's doubt. I think it's more just like, just, okay, you tell me. <laughs> Show me, right? And, uh, and again, Ezekiel would know. He wasn't, he wasn't like the Sadducees. He would know those resurrection accounts of Elijah and Elisha. Um, he would know. There was, the, only, the story that might be in the background here is the, that weird resurrection where the person is given to touch Elisha's bones, where they bury him, or they put him in Elisha's grave. Do you know this story? This is not one they teach in Sunday school. It's the ones that, the, I'm convinced the stories they teach in they taught me in Sunday school anyway were not the ones that I would have enjoyed the most. Like, why don't you read all the weird ones? That would have kept me in church. Anyway, all right, so here. Uh, then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of that year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders and put the man in the tomb of Elisha, which apparently was unmarked. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. You also have warfare here, right, with Moab? So, interesting back, maybe a little bit of a backstory there. All right. <laughs> hmm, what a fun story. All right, so um, those were all, but the difference is, is those, those were all recent deaths, right? Uh, this story given to Eli- this picture given to Elijah, excuse me, to Ezekiel is quite different. How much different is it? What kind of bones are they? Dry bones. How, dry, how bones? How dry were those bones? Where does it? Where did it say? Does it say very dry there somewhere? Uh, where was it? Prof- oh, there it is. Where is it? Which verse? With the very bone, very dry. Oh, yes, there they were. They were very dry. Thank you. Back in verse 2. All right, so these are not, uh, to quote Monty Python, these are not mostly dead people. These are very dead people. Um, yeah, I, I've had a few questions recently about burial practices. And uh, it's, you can see this from Jesus, but yeah, they, these are very dead people. The. Uh, um, the practice in the ancient world was to, uh, in most, at least most of the Jews in particular, is they would lay the body out, so they'd wrap it with the anointing spices, and this is Jesus, right? And they wrap him, his face, and his body. Same with Lazarus. They would lay you to rest on a slab. And the family too. And then they'd come back, and you would just decay over time. They would gather up all the, you know, the cloth and everything, um, which would also probably have rotten out too, right? Over the year moths. Moth, and then um, even though they sealed it, 
And then they would just gather the bones, put the bones into a bone box, an ossuary, and put that into the wall. So, but what's interesting then here is this, these, these people were not buried, were they? So whatever they are, they've been cursed, actually. To be slain in the battlefield and not buried um, was a form of, that was like one of the most severe kinds of curse. To be just picked clean by the animals, probably. Um, I, I remember listening to an uh, NPR show years and years ago about um, people getting lost at the southern border. This was long before our current crisis. Um, but people who would try to cross in Arizona and they would just disappear. And so somebody um, said, we need to find out what's happening to all these people. Where are they going? They were illegal migrants, but what was happening to them? And he started collecting bones and doing, you know, if there was a little bit of marrow left, they could still do DNA and they could track these people. Up. And he was finding the bones were being scattered like 30 to 50 miles. Of one person, by one place. And his bones were being scattered that far. That's why they could never find the remains. Because you'd think they just fall, and the people would pick, and they just leave the bones, you know, like you see in the movies. No, the bones get carried all over the place. Vultures. Yeah, vultures and other things. Yeah. yeah. They just grab a piece and go, right? So, um, yeah, that was a pleasant thought. Look at that. But, I mean, you, that is a kind of a curse, right? Is, it's to be left unburied. I think I gave you a citation about this somewhere on here. It was actually, God actually commanded that you bury um, even the war dead. Uh, did I not put it on here? It's on there somewhere. You'll find it. It doesn't really matter. You got the idea. All right. So first he doesn't know anything, but then the Lord gives him words to speak. And now he has all sorts of things to say, doesn't he? I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will, da, 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 this, you shall know, oh yeah, what, that I am the Lord. So what's the other important point here? They're not just being raised from the dead. But what's going to happen as a result? This final statement is really important. Then. Yeah, then you, that is the dead, shall know that I am the Lord, right? So the purpose of their resurrection is not just that they come back to life, but that they have faith, that they trust that they'd be made people of God, right? So this is uh, what we were talking about before connected to baptism. Um, you know, baptism is a little, it is a resurrection from the dead. We were buried, therefore, with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the glory, or raised on, from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live in newness of life. You all learned that in your catechism, right? Romans 6. So uh, it's death and resurrection and baptism. Right? But not just so that you come back to life, but that you believe. He gives you life for the sake of faith. Right? He preserves your life for the sake of faith. He preserves this world for the sake of faith. It's all that you would know that I am the Lord. Right? And to know, this is that Hebrew word. You've probably heard this before. This is like intimate knowing. This is not like, um, I have knowledge in my head. But it's, it's to know your wife or, or husband, as the case may be. Have that kind of intimacy with God. Right? So that's important too. All right. So now he has a word to speak. And this is, it's somewhat repetitive, right? He says what, I prophesied what I was commanded. Right? And this is, of course, pastoral ministries this way. I'd say all Christians are this way. We confess what we've been given to say. No more, no less. Right? That's, that's a hard lesson, right? Because we want to add to and we want to expound. We want to be like Pharisees and add more laws where God hasn't. Um, but also, I think it's important to what I said in the sermon, is that apart from God's giving us the words to speak, the good news, we wouldn't have good news to speak. Because it, it doesn't come from us. We're not even capable of the white pill, if you want to use the colloquial phrase. We're only black pills <laughs> that bring death, right? You want good news, saying all we need is love, doesn't actually bring, bless you, all you need is love doesn't actually bring love. It, doesn't, it didn't ever do it. I could have said that in so but I didn't want to dwell too much on Mr. Lennon. You know? Like, all we need is love. Okay, then where is it? And why don't we have it? That was the implicit. Like, he's like, oh, we just need it. And he meant, like, more drugs and, uh, and free love, I guess. Sexual love, but whatever. So it's still missing something. And that's kind of what happens here, isn't it? I prophesied. I did what he told me to I said what he told me to say. And then things happened like he said they would. Because the word actually has the authority to do this, right? It's not, Ezekiel's not like some super powerful guy or something. Um, 
This is supernatural. It's beyond nature. It's beyond his capacity. Only God could do this. Oh Lord, you know. So there was a noise, a rattling. The bones came together bone to bone. Sinews and flesh came upon and skin covered them over, but there was no breath. In them. What was the, what was the famous, the first stop motion movie? John knows. With the, with the, was it Jason and the Argonauts? Where they had all the skeletons running around? Anybody seen that? You seen it? It was Jason and the Argonauts, right? Okay. You don't know what I'm talking about? No. Yeah. And there's all, there's like the army of the dead. Yeah. And it was stop, it was stop motion. Combination stop motion, live motion. So it was, yeah, it was pretty revolutionary at the time. Makes me think of that. <laughs> Except these have sinews and flesh and skin, but they're still dead. Um, so when, when we make that good confession in the, in the creed, the Nicene Creed, that this, um, um, the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, then that what we're saying there is, apart from the Spirit, there is no life in us. We are dead. You could say it this way, dead in trespasses and sins. I, I once preached it this way. I said, you know, um, it, was, it was when... Uh, when the zombie thing was still kind of the hip thing to t- have in, in television. So he said, we're like the wa- we are the walking dead apart from the spirit. Yeah. So no breath in them. I don't know why he didn't prophesy the breath. The first, because that was in the previous section, right? And put breath in you and you shall live. But why, why did Ezekiel leave that out? Did he forget? Oh, they still need breath. So he gets another command from uh, the hand of the Lord, prophesy to the breath or to the spirit or to the wind. Right, you'll see this in a second. Son of man, say to the wind, spirit, breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So you see how the translator was having a fun time. Uh, from the winds, you could have said, O spirit. That would have been what I would do. So we'll just change it. We got this fancy tool. We'll just, oh no. Got to go back to pen. Let's just change it. And we'll just say spirit there. All right. Now it's fun. You're like, wait a minute. Come from the four winds, O spirit, and breathe on these slain that they may live. I like that better. But again, there's... So what's interesting here is that God commands the wind to come and breathe life into the slain from the four corners. So all the cardinal directions, right? The four winds. So from all over, I'm trying to think if there was something I was going to say about that. It does seem a little strange, doesn't it? That there's wind coming from all over the place and that's life. Although we heard this this week, he, caused, he used the wind to bring the quail right? from the sea. But that was only from one direction, from the west, right? From the sea. And here it's coming from all four. Um, I, this is, I think this is the reason, this bit right here is the reason why this is appointed for one of the three years of the three-year lectionary on Pentecost. Because there you have the mighty rushing wind come into the room. And who are gathered there? Not the spirit from the four, wind, or the four winds, but we have people from every nation, language, and tongue, right? Cappadocians and Syrians and Asians. That's Asia Minor. Who else do we have? Romans, Greeks, Pontus. You read all these. We did it in class. You don't remember? Where'd they all come from? Did we miss a place? Yeah, they came from all over the world, right? And then, but the Spirit was brought upon them, and they left alive, actually, and they returned to the four corners with the gospel. Float all on the screen as we're scrolling. Good. So they lived and stood on their feet, and then this is interesting, an exceedingly great army. Uh, We probably have missed that. There's a whole section in the hymnal that we don't, we don't use very much. Which section am I thinking of that would relate to an exceedingly great army? Church yeah, the church militant. Uh, we like it like only at Reformation time, right? A mighty fortress is our God, right? So we sing that. Um, Lord of our life and God of our salvation. That's a militant song, right? Flung to the heedless winds. What is this? It's a Martin Luther hymn, but it's not in our LSB. Oh, very nice. This one would be appropriate for today. Uh, Lord, keep us steadfast. I don't know. Did this have a church militant section? Those, some of you grew up with this hymnal, right? No? Yes. Yeah, I did too. 
The red one. Cross and comfort. No, I think, see, I, I think I'm actually answering my own question. Communion of saints. Prayer. Christian warfare. There it is. We actually call it Christian warfare in here. <laughs> Don't tell the people who read my article on Friday or Thursday in the sounder. This is always a problem. You write it and then something happens and you're like, oh no, I think people might take this the wrong way. But I'm like, I'm not going to tell Gary to revise it. Just leave it. Uh, rise to arms with, my, with prayer employ you. Am I a soldier of the cross? I don't know that one. Rise my soul to watch and pray. Fight the good fight with all thy might. All right. Soldiers of Christ arise. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Everybody knows that one. The son of God goes forth to war. That's my favorite one. Seeing that one at... Um, at uh, uh, All Saints Day. We are the Lord's all-sufficient merit. Yeah. The problem with Christian warfare section, LSB has a few more, is that it's right next to Christ, church triumphant. So what's the difference between the church militant and the church triumphant? What do you think? Kind of law gospel, yeah. That's, that's good. It's maybe one side, the other side of the resurrection. So the church militant are those awaiting the resurrection. Church triumphant are those in the resurrection. But you, are you church militant or church triumphant? Oh. Yeah, you're both. So in this life, according to the flesh, yes, militant. Um, but by faith, baptism, you are already in the church triumphant. So you actually live both existence. Yeah. Two kingdoms, right? That's the language. It's actually, yeah, probably closer to two kingdoms than law gospel, probably. Um, so we, we do try to, sh we shy away from all the warfare language or the more aggressive language, the more aggressive stories in the Bible. Um, because we don't, what we don't see, and I think this is the answer here, is we don't see that probably the reason these people died, and if we want to take John's apocalypse as kind of an interpretive key, the reason they died was for the faith, because they, they followed after Christ. They were cursed by the world, right? Now, you could take it another way. You could say that these are people who are unsavable, right, under the curse. And yet God comes and resurrects them anyway, which is also a beautiful confession. I like that too, right, for us. I've been cursed by the world and yet will be resurrected um, by the doing of God. And it's not by Ezekiel's doing at all. Um, but the idea that they're an army, you know, you see that with um, when we studied was it this week or last week when we studied the tabernacle and the way that each tribe was oriented around the tabernacle with the Levites immediately protecting the tabernacle and then each tribe was set up. Um, we read it in chapel from ESV and it, they called them, and I even told, I even remember telling the children to walk out in, it, I said tribes, but what was, I can't remember what the reading said. According to ranks maybe? Was it rank? No. Yeah, it was, it was by their family or their tribe, but, but it, it was military language, like in order. Uh, and then when, but in, I read New King James for the daily prayer, and so that one was um, uh, according to the armies. Actually, just said, remember you count? when they did the census, that's, that was the context of this. It was the fighting age men, right? 20 and above, 20 years old and above that could fight. Right, so that, that idea of warfare going on, um, ultimately... What we find out is that God does not want to be at war with his people, or really anybody, but, but rebellion against God makes him your enemy, and then he does wage war against you, but not to destroy you, hopefully, although he does do that too, um, but, but actually to repent you, to, to say, well then, who am I, how am I going to be saved? If God is against me, what am I going to do? And of course, the confession, good Christian confession is, no, God is not against you, he's for you. No one can separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus. So the, our, our fight is not with God. Um, our fight actually as an army, if you like, militant, um, is with the devil, world, our flesh, hell, those things. right? Um, and not with one another too, by the way. Not just in the Christian congregation, but also in your family, your community. right? I know we love to complain about people. Oh, how could, pick your person, how could Hamas do this to, to Israel? Right? Well, our fight isn't with Hamas. Um, it, that's a spiritual oppression that you would, I mean, it's a totally, they live in a totally different world than we do. The idea that, you, that the goal of warfare is glory and 
bring the shame on your enemies. It's not like you don't even need the territory. That's all they wanted is just to be glorified by their fellow people and to bring shame upon Israel. That's it. They don't. There's not like land, property, wealth. They didn't care about any of that. It's like what? We can't even understand that because when we go to war, what do we want? Land, property, wealth, <laughs> right? Slaves. They didn't, Hamas didn't care about that at all. It was, it was about actually just bringing shame upon Israel, which is incredible, right? Different world, different world. All right, so let me focus back on what we're doing. Then I said, son of the man, and here's the in- interpretive key within the text. These bones are, we would say, represent... Um, or what's another translation I gave you? Stand for the whole house of Israel. All right. So they could, what it could mean here, and I think this is helpful because it says whole house is these are the slain Assyrians. These are the Assyrians that rebelled and then were conquered by, excuse me, not the Assyrians, the uh, Israelites who had been conquered by Assyria 130 years before, had long been, long gone. They're so dead that they're dry bones. Right? Nobody, thought, nobody could possibly think that Israel could be restored. Judah, yes, they're in exile in Babylon. But Israel, they've been long conquered and assimilated. Now that you understand, because this is exactly what Jesus encounters when he goes to what ends up being, what was Israel, what's it end up being? What does that land end up being? Samaria. Right? And that's the point. These Samar- the Samarians, they're half-breeds, Right? They're not savable. They can't be brought to faith. And what does Jesus do with Samaritans all the time? <laughs> he converts them, right? He raises them, raises them up. So they're like dry bones, maybe. Um, and then you also have the restoration of the whole house, so all those who would believe. And that, of course, includes you, too. It's not just Judah and Israel, those geographies, as we talked about at the beginning. But it's actually the whole house. The whole house. All those who would believe. Right? And then they've been brought back to life, but notice what are they still lacking? They even have the spirit or the breath in them for life, but they're still crying out with a lament. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Wait a minute, you're alive. How are your bones dry now? Sinews, flesh, breath. Does that make sense? What they're saying there? Yeah, I think they're saying that we're still, in a way, we're still dead. We're still dead, or we're still, you've raised us now, but we're still dying. Remember we talked about the little resurrection, big resurrection? So here's the little one. Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we ourselves are cut off. Yeah, we're alive now, but you haven't really, like, and so then there's an even greater promise. Say to them this, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. So there's the restoration to Israel, to the land, the promised land we would say is heaven. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, right? And again, it's for faith. That's what this is. This is a cry of unbelief, right? But no, I'm going to, and no, who's going who's to give them faith? The Lord is. How? When he raises them up again. Right? When I opened your graves and brought you up from your graves. And of course, you won't really be living until you have my spirit in you. So that's, I think, how, why they didn't translate it spirit here is because they wanted to translate it as spirit here. And here it's clearly spirit because it's got the possessive pronoun before it, right? A possessive article. Is that is it a pronoun? No, it's not a pronoun. Why? Why is it a possessive pronoun? Who knows grammar? Hmm. Long ago. My spirit in you, you shall live and I will place you in your own land and you will know that I am the Lord, or I the Lord have spoken and performed it, says the Lord. So this is such lovely gospel, isn't it? And that, what can dry bones do? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, they're dead. Right. What can dead people do? Nothing. Right. But yet God comes to them and says, uh, "No, I'm going to command you out of your graves and put you back together. I'm actually going to breathe life on you, and I'm going to restore you to your land." Right. And we've talked a lot about land um, previously, being a picture of. that like full restoration, I suppose. And the other thing that I note on the sheet that I think is helpful here is this is all the language of the Exodus as well. (laughs) So if you didn't, I mean, this is the problem. Baptism, we've had baptism. We've had death and resurrection. But we also have the Exodus in the background here too. 
and we have all the resurrection stories, all of that's kind of being brought together and alluded to. And you're like, well, which is it, Pastor? Yes, it is. So bringing you back into your land, they're in Babylon, they're going to be brought back, right? But you, uh, your exodus from where to where? From death to life. From death to life, good. Could even say from, uh, from exile um, outside the garden back into the garden, if you want to do that. That's, that's another little, a little exodus, right? right? And it's all a gift of God, and that's the important language here. And they don't even, it's, it's unbelievable even to the resurrected, which is crazy, right? Wait a minute, you just raised you up to the life. What are, you, what are you saying? We're cut off. No, you're not cut off. So he's like, no, I have more to do yet. I'm going to keep breathing my spirit on you. That's a regular ongoing gift. Every time you hear the word preached, every time you hear your sins forgiven, receive the sacrament, encourage to remember your baptism in God's name, whatever it is, the spirit is being breathed out of you and life is coming into you. Right, and you're being sustained in the life. So we actually say, like I said, the Lord and giver of life, that's from the Nicene Creed and also 2 Corinthians. I mentioned Pentecost, where the life is brought into them again. Um, ultimately, uh, you're going to set this in contrast. I noted this at the end. As you hear in the daily readings throughout this week about Joshua, well, it's not Joshua, it's actually Moses. The people refused to go into the promised land which is incredible. Why did they refuse to go into the promised land? Here it is. It's a gift to you. Do you remember the story? If you don't, it's fine. We'll read it this week. But what was their reluctance? Why weren't they going? There's too many scary people. <laughs> it's too scary. And who's the one giving them the land? God is, right. Yeah. So is it beyond God's ability to deliver the land to them, even if they're small and they're how many stories do we have? Gideon, right? With the 300 against the exceeding army. Or how many times with Israel, right? Uh, it's God's deliverance. It's not theirs. And so finally with Joshua, they are brought into the promised land. But who's the one that does the conquering of, jo- of Israel, of the promised land for Joshua? Do you remember this part? Who goes before the arms? All right, we're, we're, don't worry, we'll get there. The angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army does. Yeah, the angel of the Lord, the Lord's army. In other words, it's Christ who goes before them. He's the one that conquers the land. All they have to do is, is follow, yeah, and inherit it, right, to receive it. Same thing here. So you see a little bit of that kind of doubt, like with the Exodus with Moses. Oh, we're out in the wilderness. Oh, this worthless food. Oh, we're going to die in the wilderness, right? All the complaining. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm bringing you to where you're going. And what, what, really, without the Spirit, there's going to be no trust. But with the Spirit, there is trust. You believe he's, you are his people um, and that he is the Lord and that he will do it as he has promised. So I think that's the other reason this is so popular. Is because, especially, um, well, like I said, the, the African spiritual, right, with dry bones at the beginning. You know, why are they singing that? Because they were being oppressed, right? land had been taken to a foreign country but heard the gospel and then um, saw that as a picture of what they were looking for right death and resurrection uh, being restored to their land being set free right Um, all of that and so that happens for us ultimately well we say it now and not yet right church militant we now receive it by faith promised land resurrection bones and sinews and flesh coming together, spirit being breathed on the slain, um, but ultimately in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting on the last day. That's how we see it as Christians. Um, I can understand how, how a Jew would hear it as a little bit more short-term, but oh, what poverty, right? When you see the great, the great gift that God is giving here, um, talking about the death and resurrection of, of all who believe. So, all right, I've talked a lot. Uh, do you have, you're all very quiet. Is that, you're thinking about the deer that are, you're, are escaping your, your hunt? We had some men probably hunting today, don't you think? Is it Bo still? No. Oh, it's the youth hunt. Ah, that's where they are. Okay. All right. They get an extra week or something? They get first pick? The youth do? Oh, that's nice. For, yeah. 
So progressively, the, the more and more skilled hunters get the last crack at it. Okay, all right. That makes sense. That's fair. Good. All right, so that's not the end of the chapter, and it's not really the end of the story. So that was the familiar part. And we're going to move on to the less familiar part. But you're going to see, I think, next time, how much it... Um, uh, how much more richness we can actually bring to what we just read by if, if we keep reading, which I always argue. All right? Okay, good. That's it. That's where we wanted to be. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Depart in peace. Thanks for coming. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.